Who, who's on first? Wrong movie. Are you sure? Aren't these the who's on first guys? They are, but still, wrong movie. But is, that is their best bit, right? Oh, one of the best. I think this is their best bit right here, this movie. I don't think it's their best bit. I think it is. See, that's the thing, because these guys made, like, a billion movies, but they also had, like, decades in, like, vaudeville, and I think yeah. they did a bunch of shorts, right? Yeah. So it's like, what is their best bit? Because Chaplin, you could probably say, like, Great Dictator's probably his best performance, but, like, I would say Gold Rush is his best movie. Mm-hmm. That's personally me. Yeah. And, like, Buster Keaton, like, the the general, like, that's pretty obvious. And then you have Laurel and Hardy, where all their movies are hilarious. Well, they did, like, shorts for a long time. Yeah. Aren't most of their movies only, like, 30 minutes? Like, they basically did, like, TV before TV. Somewhere in there. It's been a, a long time since I've watched a, a full, like, Laurel and Hardy movie. But they are on the shorter scale of the spectrum of, like, full feature film and short film, silent film. Yeah, I mean, like, top tier, old school, golden age Hollywood mm. comedians, That that's Marx Brothers, right? Ooh, I they're, do love me some Marx Brothers. Are they, the, are they the best of the old Hollywood com- comic acts? Because I watched, like, Duck Soup, Night at the Opera, and we watched, um... Night in Casablanca. Night in Casablanca. And those ones still held up, like, from end to end. And we have to say, Hail Fredonia. Hail, Hail Fredonia. But I think we need to tell everybody who we're talking about, because we just keep saying, these guys, and, you know, who's on first. These dudes, these boys, you know, these These gentlemen. And today we're talking about Abbott and Costello, and not just Abbott and Costello, it's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes, the 1948 film directed by Charles Barton stars Bud Abbott, Lucas Costello, Lon Chaney Jr., Bella Lugosi. Lugosi, Glenn Strange. Yes, this is the monster movie comedy, the OG monster movie comedy. And also the OG monster squad, because there are a squad of monsters in this movie. Yes, there are. And sub surprisingly held up pretty well for being a movie from 1948 like there's nothing problematic in this movie quote-unquote this uh, this movie is still like good to show no no this is a good movie it's a great movie to introduce children to the universal monsters because we have two of our iconic universal monsters you know bella lugosi and lon chaney jr as dracula and the wolfman respectively and then we have glenn strange who is stepping in to be frankenstein I, I think Glenn Strange is still a good Frankenstein. He played Frankenstein more than... He played Frankenstein um, Karloff did, right? three times, I think, additional to this. But this was the first time that his Frankenstein spoke. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that, that makes sense. Yeah, so we have our classic Universal Monsters, and I think this is like the end until we get Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman decades and decades later that we have all the, the monsters reunite again. Well, well, Monster Squad was in the 80s. That's before that. No, I know. But, I mean, uh, Van Helsing was a Universal production. Oh, so. the next time the Universal mm-hmm. banner comes in? I gotcha. Yeah, so it wouldn't be till I think it was 2004, 2005, when we have all the monsters reunited. My brother, unironically, says that Van Helsing is at a, an amazing work of cinema. He... <laughs> my, Randy, I'm going to tell you this. Oh, I, I know. We've met a yes, couple of times. Randy... Is one of these people, he's, like, no real, like, hard and fast rule about, like, movies he likes. He's like, if the movie's good, I like it. If the movie's bad, I don't like it. 
but I've discovered something. He likes a very, very specific subgenre of movies, and that is steampunk sci-fi shit, where it's like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Van Helsing fits in there, and it's like, like movies like that, I don't think he's seen one he doesn't like. He legit says League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a perfect film. He has told me that in confidence. And he also likes Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur. Um, yeah, Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur. He Lawrence likes Spartacus, Lawrence of Arabia. Randy's like, either I get four hour long movies or I get really weird early 2000s Hugh Jackman movies. That That's his span of movies he likes. I can respect that. Hugh Jackman was in some bangers in the early 2000s. Yeah, he's a phenomenal actor. It's really weird to think that Hugh Jackman started his career as, like, a song and dance guy on stage. Mm -hmm. And then he came to America, and they're like, we're gonna make you Wolverine. You're gonna be the action guy. We're gonna make you a star. We're gonna make you a star, kid. But everything he did that was not directly related to X-Men or Wolverine, that was an action movie, Mm -hmm. all failed. Yeah. It's just really weird. It is. But bring it back to Adam Costello. So this is a film that I saw in the 90s. I think this is maybe around the time that I first saw the Universal Monsters. So it, it kind of, you know, went hand in hand. But I'm surprised that this is your first time ever watching it. I had never seen any Abbott and Costello film. I had only seen the Who's On First bit in isolation. I have no idea where it's from. I have no idea if it was just that bit and there was no expanded movie around it. Yeah. I just know that bit because it's, it's like the most famous bit in comedy right i mean it, it was also famous in um our wax museum that we used to go to um next to po boys in buena park that was one of the installments in the wax museum was the who's on first and it would repeat the whole the whole bit the whole it'd, bit it'd be, and it's like a five minute long bit something like that yeah so it's it's an iconic segment in comedy history yeah but i had never seen any mm. of their movies i had no idea the shtick they had mm-hmm. And watching this, I think, is a pretty good approximation. Let me let me see if I get this right. Okay. So, Bud Abbott, he's kind of the no-nonsense, hard-nosed um, boss, right? Kind of bosses um, Costello around, tells him what to do. Mm-hmm. And Costello is Homer Simpson, where he's the, the laughable, lovable nitwit who kind of gets himself in trouble. Yeah, so Bud Abbott is the straight man, and Luke Costello is the lovable goof that gets himself into trouble. And shows, you know, uh, Costello, or sorry, Abbott, that no, I really was right. And I'm not just being a goofball for the entire shtick. Okay. I got that because the whole movie is based around their comedy. It's not really based around the monsters so much. It's Mm -hmm. based around them being goofballs or basically Costello being goofballs. Yeah. And it's really weird to me because I, I don't know a lot about them, but I found out, you know, a little bit of research that they fucking hated each other up to this point. <clears throat> yeah, because I mean, this was what, 48? 48, they started making movies together in 1940. I don't know if they had, I assume they had like a vaudeville background before that. Yeah, so they've been working together for a long time. And yeah, of course, after a while, it's, I'm so used to you. I'm, you know, kind of over you, but we're this like dynamic duo. So we're kind of lumped together. There's no world where they split up and have profitable careers away from each other yeah it's a package deal it's not like you know one could leave and you know have a triumphant career it's like no you both want this 
we're going to have both of you guys together. Mm. It's not like the Marx Brothers where it's multiple brothers and I think it was their eldest brother. But one of the brothers, he was a straight man. He was able to leave the troop after a while because he was just like... You don't need me and the Marx Brothers anymore? Yeah, it's like the Marx Brothers are still going to be the brothers. But with them, it's like, you know, if one leaves obviously it's it yeah that's you know laurel leaving hardy exactly that's george leaving the beatles it's it's a whole problem here it's problematic yeah so with them this was an issue they were not getting along and then when universal came to them with this opportunity for the movie Luke costello was like absolutely not my daughter could write a better script than this i am fucking out i heard that literally (laughs) everyone involved thought the movie was bad yeah everyone thought this was gonna flop uh they approached boris karloff to be in it and he was like absolutely not and i mean you know respectively so after years and you know in previous episodes we talked about you know the physical toll playing they broke his body to be frankenstein so it's like yeah you know totally understandable that he would bow out of this movie and we talked about that in our bride episode where boris karloff would only come back for james whale yeah. Basically, unless your name was James Whale, he would never play Frankenstein again. And yeah. I don't know what dirt James Whale had on Boris Karloff to have him put on the makeup again, but it had to be something good. Because in this, I know Boris Karloff, because you told me about this, he like was promoting the movie or he pretended like he was in it or something y- like that. Yeah, there was a, a thing where Universal came to him and they're like, can you be in it? He said no, but as a courtesy to Universal and also because he's a nice guy, he was like, I'll go and promote it. You know, if you want to send me out with a photographer, I'll go take pictures with like the posters or we'll go to um, kiosks at theaters and you could take pictures of me there, but I don't want to be in it. And please don't make me watch it. And it was just like, okay. I'm like, I've never heard, you know, something like that before, but cool deal. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the story of everyone involved in this movie. Because it feels like everyone made the movie under the assumption that it was either this or nothing. Yeah. Because uh, Abbott and Costello, I think at that point, they were considered um, overexposed by the studio. Like, oh, you guys have been in so many movies, the audience is starting to dwindle. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much backstock so recently that there's no reason for them to keep showing up. And then with this movie being, you know, a smash, Mm -hmm. it, you know, launched a new career of movies where they faced new monsters. The Mummy, Jekyll and Hyde. um, The Invisible Man. And it's just like, yeah, you know, people love comedy. People love these monsters. And a way to get both of them together, which was kind of new for the time, Mm -hmm. it's like, we'll take it. Well, and, and I wanted to talk about that because... These guys had been in, because again, their movie career started in 1940, right? Yeah. But from 1940 to 1948, they made like 20-something movies. Yeah. So in eight years, they had made like almost three movies a year and just kept going. And I can see why the studio would be like, guys, you gotta like, we're, we're gonna cut your contract because there's so much content of mm-hmm. you out there that we can't make more of movies for you. Yeah. Like, there's just, we're just repeating our, our shtick. And then Bela Lugosi came back as Dracula because he couldn't get really get any work for anything well, else. that's an interesting concept. So, Bela Lugosi wasn't approached at first to make this movie. What? Yes, because the studio, I guess they hadn't heard from him, you know, in a while. They assumed he was dead. I'm, uh, I mean... And they found out, oh no, he's alive. 
let's ask Bella if he wants to be part of the cast. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, I don't want to be mean or nothing, but Bella Lugosi ain't looking too hot in this movie. No, I mean, Dracula is from 1931, I believe. Yeah, it came out six or eight months before Frankenstein. So it's 19, it's like April 31. Yeah, so we've got 31 till 48. She's, yeah it's like 17 years yeah it's been a long and he, time and he was already like in his 40s during dracula so he has to be so. what almost 60 somewhere in there yeah oh geez so you're able to see it but it's just to see him in the cape again and it's being nice. dracula it's like this feels right it, it would have been weird if they had chosen another actor to be dracula it would have been weird i mean the glenn strange thing we'll get into that in yes, a minute we will. but it's just interesting because Lugosi took this because he couldn't get work doing anything else. And then, like, Lon Chaney took this because Lon Chaney would take any role you gave him. He had no he had no thing where he was like, I'm too good for this. Or it's like, I don't do this. He, like, they would just give him roles. And he'd be like, absolutely, just give oh, me a, just give me oh, a schedule. Yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. was just a beast. Like, yeah, let's tackle this next project. Let's do it. I found this out. He was a workaholic character actor. Yeah. Because they, there's a couple of producers who said, yeah, he drank a lot, but he was never rude or mean or whatever to anybody. If we ever had a part and we were like, I don't know who to give this to, they would call up Lon Chaney and he would just tell him, yeah, tell, tell me when I got to show up on set. No questions asked. Very professional. Oh, yeah. Very professional, very ready to go. And I have kind of something, an interesting fact about this movie that, you know, is brand new to me. Brand new to you, obviously. But wow. Lon Chaney Jr. actually played two monsters in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I know this one. I actually do know this one because he played Frankenstein when they had to chuck the actress out the window. Yeah, that's right. Because what was it? Was it Glenn Strange did, couldn't like pick her up or Glenn Strange didn't want to do it? No, or no. Uh, that day, I guess when they were going to film the scene where he throws uh, Dr. Murray out the window in the laboratory, Glenn Strange tripped over a camera cable and broke his ankle. Jesus. So it was a and thing. He's already not in this movie that much. No, so it was a thing where it was Lon Chaney Jr.'s day off, and they called him and they're like, "Hey, can we, you know, put you in makeup? We need to do this scene." He was like, "Absolutely." Showed up, did the scene. You can't even tell the switch. Not and really. It's like you know, good on you, Lon Chaney. It's like good actor. You got to be two iconic monsters in one movie. Well, over the course of his career, he was four because he, yeah. was, he was the wolf man in a, in a movie he was dracula in another and had, and he was and, frankenstein in another and one and he was the mummy and he was the mummy yeah th that's the thing lon cheney jr had zero fucks to give if you if you gave him a ham sandwich and a and any motivation he would just do your movie you and your brando ham sandwiches brando from my understanding was a connoisseur of sandwiches also hot dogs but, Have you heard the tale of Marlon Brando's late night hot dog binges? They're but, legend. you know, to you, it's always the ham sandwich. You never elaborate. You never say chicken parm, Monte Cristo, bologna. Ham sandwich is the classic. Ham sandwich is a classic sandwich. But variety. Okay. I understand variety. It is the spice of life. I love a chicken parm sandwich. I love myself a nice PB&J. Meatball I, sandwich. Meatball sandwiches. The whole huge fan. But if I'm going, the quintessential sandwich, and, and our viewers can comment about this, the quintessential sandwich is the ham sandwich. Get a little a couple slices of deli ham on there, put some mayo, mustard, maybe a, a slice of a tomato on there, a little bit of lettuce, between two slices of nice wheat bread. That is the traditional sandwich. I prefer turkey. And you can be wrong. That's totally fine. It's okay. You're wrong all the time. 
<sighs> but yeah, so Abbott and Costello. Yeah, he's played multiple monsters, almost all of the iconic monsters. Yeah. But to play two of them in one film is pretty cool. Because it it's usually cool. it's one or the other. It's not, you know, you get to be multiple people. And he gets to be Frankenstein and the Wolfman. Two, the two best ones. Exactly. Well, I mean, I love Dracula. You can't leave Dracula out. Dracula is the one I think has aged the most out of all of the like classic Universal movies. It's still good, but that one is borderline a silent film, and you can tell. Yeah, and, and it's it's like the weird amalgamation of like the old silent movies moving into sound, and they don't. The two styles don't mesh totally right. Okay, so since I'm so used to this movie and you're brand new to this, was it weird for you to see Dracula with a score underneath him? Super weird. Yeah. The whole, th actually, honestly, just seeing Bela Lugosi play this kind of Dracula was weird. Because Bela Lugosi, he was a working actor for mm -hmm. years and years and years. Stage actor. Huge stage actor. Mm -hmm. And in Hollywood, he had a huge problem getting work after... Mm -hmm. Dracula, because they only wanted for horror stuff. Yeah. And his accent pretty much locked him off from being, like, a mainstream leading, a leading man. man. yeah. Because, like, rightfully so. It's 1930-ish or whatever. They, like, sound is a new thing. American audiences aren't really used to people having anything other than a Midwestern accent. And, yeah, Bo Lugosi had a huge problem with that. But to see him play Dracula again... And it's like, he's playing kind of the same role, mm -hmm. but I wonder if that 17 year difference came into effect and he was like, I'm going to try and do something totally different. Because this Dracula is more like a maniacal madman than like the suave creature of the night. Well, maniacal, but also he's having a good time. Oh, oh yeah. He is loving every he moment He goes to the dance. Okay, like the whole thing about there being like a dance in this, about there being like the House of Horrors. There's some, the the castle that has the comically large um, door knockers. This, this movie <laughs> Which is would like probably living... inspire young Frankenstein. What knockers? <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. But that's the thing. So much of this movie feels like a cartoon. And I think Bela Lugosi is playing like the cartoon version of Dracula. Glenn Strange is straight up like the cartoon version of Dra of Frankenstein. Yeah, when I was sitting there watching him, it's like, we just watched The Bride, so obviously, you know, we got to study Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. And in this one, it was kind of, you know, watching him, and I was like, he reminds me a little bit of Boris, but also a little bit of Fred Gwynn as Herman Munster. The makeup is exactly the same. Do you know how uh, Glenn Strange kind of got typecasted into being Frankenstein? I assume it's because he's six foot six and big. That too, but also, I guess he was at the commissary in Universal Studios, like in between uh, movies, and Jack Pierce happened to see him in the commissary. I was like, hey, you know, um, I want to practice this makeup technique on you. I'll pay you like five, ten bucks. Will you sit with me after your day's done? And Glenn Strange agreed, and he did him up in the Frankenstein makeup, like the traditional makeup, and Jack Pierce was kind of like, wow, like your your make really sets well with the Frankenstein makeup. So this is what kind of put him on the path to being... The the Frankenstein guy, yeah, the, and, the monster guy. And this was before Universal let go of Jack Pierce because it was, oh, well, it's cheaper to bring in, you know, people that are faster and they'll use, you know, tips and tricks and, you know, more like rubber, plastic, you know, prosthetic stuff. Than to have Jack Pierce spend 
six hours with an actor trying to sculpt a, a creating a, look. a masterpiece. Yeah, so it was yeah. like let's you know let's bring in some new people, new blood, and have them do it faster. But it was you know thanks to Jack, Jack Pierce that you know gave Glenn Strange this new run as Frankenstein's monster, and I think he looks the best compared to some of other Frankensteins we've gotten down the line. I I say that this version of Frankenstein we see in this movie, this is the Frankenstein that audiences think Frankenstein looks like. Because he's he's the big one. He has the platform shoes. He he walks with his arms out. He doesn't yeah. he doesn't act like Carlos Frankenstein. Who, you know, also has, you know, the, the flat top boxy head and, you know, the the black clothes, the the platforms, but he doesn't, doesn't he doesn't do the the zombie walk or the mummy walk with his arms out. He walks like a person. Yeah, that's the, that's and that's the thing I want to get at. Carlos Frankenstein, like that's you know the probably the best actual performance mm-hmm. as the character. But I think Glenn Strange, how he looks, how he moves, how he brrr, and talks mm-hmm. or whatever. That's the version I think pop culture has assimilated into being, oh, that's like the stereotypical Frankenstein. If you're doing a Frankenstein gimmick, you're doing Glenn Strange's Frankenstein. Or kind of like how you fused Frankenstein and the Bride together when you thought they were one completed thing. Yeah. I think that's what maybe people have done with Boris Karloff and Glenn Strange, where they've kind of fused them into one character. And it's like, no, they're two separate actors. Makeup is almost spot on for the two of them i don't th- i don't think so i think glenn strange's makeup looks a little bit more cartoony it's a little bit more exaggerated it's yeah. not nearly as like refined or as clean as carlos this one you can tell he's wearing like a headpiece yeah yeah he's wearing um even uh carlos he was wearing the plastic uh flat top in the bride of frankenstein that was something that jack pierce came up with to speed up the process speed up the process and save you know time for carlos so he wouldn't have to sit in the chair but yeah, it's it's more rubberized, and I think there was uh, it was either an interview with Glenn Strange or someone during the making of the movie that the the flat top was so tightly you know attached to his head he would sweat, and then he would just hear the sweat kind of slosh around in there because there was no way for it to trap you know to get under the the glue that was on his forehead or all over his head, so he would just film and hear it you know rattling back and forth. That that must be. One of the biggest pains in the ass is if you're trying to give a good performance and you just hear sloshing all night. All night, having that, you know, extra weight of the water just accumulating in there. But also, he has his eyes closed for most of his performance. He's not in most of the movie. No, that's why I said most of his performance, not most of the movie. And it's just kind of like, I don't know if that's a character choice or an actor choice. And it's just like, okay, so you've got this big hulking guy and it's like, I hope he doesn't fall down. I hope well, in I mean, his six-inch platform shoes. Yeah. Well, you know what? I just realized something. We should probably tell people what the fuck the movie's about. Go on, tell them. We have a dim-witted cargo worker is pulled into a plot by Dracula to use his simple mind to better control Frankenstein's monster, but standing in his way is the Wolfman and the dimwit's best friend, the fast-talking Bud Abbott. And they combine their forces to thwart Dracula and save the day. Yeah, that's basically what's going on here. Yeah. Dracula wants to take over the world. Basically, and he wants to use Frankenstein's monster as his minion. Which I don't know what 
what his plan is really i'm like you're dracula and you can and it's shown in the movie you can hypnotize people and yeah. make them do your bend to your will yeah why aren't you just doing that more that seems more powerful than having a an a eight foot tall you know strong man essentially well i, I guess he's gonna do his bidding while he's asleep during the day ah i guess i guess because you know you have your your patsy and you tell him okay i'm about to go to sleep so while i'm asleep you clean up the castle, you get things ready, and at sunset, I'll give you more instructions. Wait a minute, this sounds vaguely familiar, but that's the basic plot of the movie. And the, let's be honest, the plot of this movie doesn't matter. Like, it's meant, it's just there it's to get- It's a fun movie. Yeah, it's just there for Abbott and Costello to get to setting mm-hmm. to do to do gags. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few, like, good settings they have in here. The castle's a lot of fun. Uh, the basement dungeon's a lot of fun. The hotel has a couple of good bits. Like, the settings they're doing it in, they're making the most out of the gag. Yeah, and fun fact, part of the castle is actually real. That's really weird. Because, was it all the interiors or, like, one room or what? They didn't go into too many specifics, so it's probably maybe a couple of rooms. Maybe some of the exteriors, like the doors... Maybe, like, the main salon going into the room. Because, obviously, this man didn't have the the, the moat be- beneath yeah, the, the house. Yeah, the moat That's Because that's what I'm saying, and I'm like... If he did... It seems so inefficient, though. If he did, if 90, that would be cool. 90% of this is on, like, a soundstage. Why would you even want to go on on location for... That seems so weird, but, I mean, fuck, that's super cool. It's probably like, oh, the... To build something close to this, it would cost too much money, I guess. Yeah. That seems that seems really weird. Yeah, I mean, this uh, home is still around. I guess it, they maybe the people that owned the home before gave it to a church, so now it's kind of like church property, and they take care of kids and other people in need, so it's still around. Huh. Yeah. It's re- that's weird. Yeah, the more you know. I had no idea about this. I was, you know, in the same boat as you. It's a matte painting and it's, you know, practical sets. But no, some of it's real. All right. But the actual movie, I just want to ask you, you know, because you love this movie. And you're, and I'm going to ask, is it because of Abbott Costello's or because of the monsters? Uh, And I want you to, like, actually give me a real answer. (laughs) It's probably more because of the monsters. Mm-hmm. Because obviously I love monsters yeah. and it's Universal monsters, so that, the, yeah, the, the real bread and butter. Lugosi's back, yes. Cheney's in. You see Frankenstein. Yeah, but I also enjoy Abbott and Costello movies. Mm-hmm. I grew up with those two, so you know it's a little bit of both, leaning more towards the monsters. Okay. On that note, what is it with Abbott and Costello you find funny? I mean, it's the same as the Marx Brothers. You have you know the straight man, and then you have the goofballs, and it's the straight man trying to round everybody up, but ultimately the goofballs win because it's more fun to be goofy and get into trouble. Okay, now, don't be wrong, I think that's, that's like, their shtick, that's why they work, Mm -hmm. but I feel like there's moments where Lou Costello is so over the top yeah. In playing the goofball. And it and it starts bordering on, like, is he self-parroting this shtick? This is what he's like in a lot of his movies. Okay. Where he's kind of, like, on the, the Jackie Gleason level of kind of, like, okay, we're really gonna kind of push the borders of goofiness. Mm-hmm. But that's basically who he is in these movies. Okay. Cool. Because I, I got no. Okay. Because 
I found them very funny near the latter half of the movie than yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, because the beginning is very like old style shtick, you know. Mm-hmm. Luke Costello's being a dummy. He's pulling. He's pulling like boxes and things are falling and all this other stuff. And there's one bit when they're in the house of monsters, where house of horrors, and it's the thing where he's, oh, he's reading Dracula's legend, and then Dracula's slowly getting out of the coffin, and then he screams. Then you know Dracula goes back in the coffin, and Abbott comes in. He's like, "What's happening?" He's like, "There's something here," and he's like, "Nothing's here," and leaves. And that happens like six or seven times. Oh yeah, it's a long scene, a long you know piece of the shtick. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, that that kind of goes with, like, the who's on first, where that, you know, kind of goes on for, like, five to ten minutes, where it's just kind of the same thing over and over. So, I agree with you, where it's funny, but then they keep going with it, and it's like, okay, I think you could have condensed it down to, like, a couple of minutes. Yeah. And then jumped on to the rest of the scene where Dracula gets out of the coffin, and he goes and blends in with the rest of the, the mannequins in the room. Yes. But yeah, and that, and I think that's something I just wanted to point out about the comedy of the movie, mm-hmm. because once they're trying to do like wordplay, once they're mm-hmm. doing like zingers or stuff mm-hmm. like that, that stuff still holds up. Yeah, like that stuff's still good. I even think like basically as soon as Lon Chaney shows up in the movie and then the hotel, the hotel is a great bit. Yeah, and it's kind of the same thing where it's like, oh, they're playing this bit to the hilt. They're going kind of along with it, but it's still working. I mean, it's the same when they're on the island at the party and Lon Chaney's, you know, going into his monologue about how he's about to turn into a wolf. And he's like, you know, the moon's out. And when it's out, I turn into a wolf. And then you have uh, Lou Costello that chimes in with the zinger. You're like, yeah, you and every, you know, 40 other thousand men, you know, they turn into wolves too. And then, yeah, they turn into wolves at midnight when, you know, lovely girls are around. That's when, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. is like, I'm being serious. And it's just like, oh crap. Like, okay. I (laughs) love Lon Chaney in this movie. Oh yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. in this movie is playing everything so serious. And he is dead serious in this movie and it makes it more funny because he's he's in a different movie yeah than everyone else and that's like oh that's like leslie nielsen in airplane where leslie nielsen if you watch that movie he <laughs> great is, movie oh, amazing movie he is in a a mid mid 70s drama he is playing everything dead straight mm-hmm. there's no farce there's no like wink wink nudge at the yeah. at the camera he's playing everything dead serious lon chaney's doing the same thing and he's the straighter man than bud abbott oh yeah but what what also shows the genius of lon chaney jr is that he's able to play the straight man as larry talbot you know this is serious you need to take me serious you know i can hurt people i could kill people but when he's the wolf man he's goofier because he's tripping over plants in the forest um, he, he gets to do all the slapstick. Yeah. He gets so, to do all the fall gags and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to see him contrast between, you know, being this serious character and to, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, Wilbur's struggling with, should I have taken that piece of fruit? He might count all his free fruit that he gets in his room. Maybe and... I should take it back. You know, let me leave him a note. And you have the wolfman, you know, lurking around and, oh, you know what? Oh, who opened that door? Let me just slam the door in the wolfman's face. Wolf slams it in the wolfman's <laughs> face. Every time Costello walks a couple feet, that's exactly when the wolfman pounces and falls over something. He kicks the wolfman in the butt thinking it's, um... It's it's uh, Costello's it's... rummaging around. Yeah, and he's telling me, like, behave we gotta look we gotta you know find our way out of here yeah and that's and i think that's the thing the bits like that where it's like oh no these guys are crafting good bits and they're Mm -hmm. cutting out when they need to they're not overstaying their welcome yeah the first half of the movie i feel that's every bit in the first i guess 
not first half, first like 20 minutes of the movie where, man, some of these bits go on for a long time yeah. and they get like, they're kind of playing into the hilt. It's like late stage family guy where it's, oh, this is a funny joke. And then it keeps going until mm-hmm. it's not funny. Yeah. And then they keep going even farther beyond that until it's like funny again. Yeah. And I'm like, Abbott and Costello is doing that, but they're not coming back around to it being funny again. They're just going way long with it. Yeah. And I feel like that's the scene with, um, with Wilbur reading, the, the legend of dracula and yeah. the candle i mean which is a great scene but you know just cut it down by a few minutes and then jump onto the next because i mean he the, reads the whole legend of dracula he reads it and it's you know the candle moving and calling chick back chick young i remembered his name now yeah and um bud abbott yeah bud abbott and then wilbur gray by Luke Costello. And I mean, just them being in that house of horrors which is creepy because those mannequins are just it very creepy that's another thing the movie actually has a sense of when it's a comedy and when it's a horror movie Mm -hmm. like when they're in the woods that's a horror movie yeah when they're in the house of horrors that's a horror movie yeah but when they're in like the the castle or the dungeon it's like oh this is a comedy this is scooby-doo yeah it's scooby-doo and i think that's the thing the movie actually has a good sense of tone mm-hmm. and, and atmosphere and when to make that switch. Yeah. Because beginning of the movie where they're at the, the cargo station, oh, this is funny. Yeah. It's like all lighthearted. Everything's lit like mm-hmm. a comedy. But then when they're like in the House of Horrors, move, boom, right to a horror movie. When they're in the laboratory, okay, this is played for last, so it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. But when they're running away and like they light Glenn Strange on fire, yeah. oh, this is a horror movie. Because it's, it's lit differently and that's something... That's interesting to see in 1948 that we had figured out how to adjust tone and atmosphere from scene to scene and meld them in a way where visually you can tell that, oh, this is the comedy part, this is the horror part, and be able to work in between them. Yeah, and that's why I love this movie so much because it's not, you know, one or the other. They are really able to blend both of these genres together and it doesn't feel like ooh, this one's kind of lacking or this one was a little weak or you're watching like the scary scene and you're like it's lit like i love lucy show yeah or it's like oh you're watching like the funny scene and you're like this is you know this looks like the wolfman it's all spooky and dark and like i can't laugh at this because it doesn't like the tone and the atmosphere doesn't fit it yeah which you know goes to the filmmakers for this one um yeah because this was directed by charles barton And I wasn't, you know, too familiar with him until I did, you know, my research. He did a lot of TV, which was kind of like, you know... Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, he was like um, on Hazel, the Patty Duke show. Um, He did a lot of Disney. He did an episode of The Monsters, McHale's Navy. So, uh, Dennis the Menace. So, he's got, you know, a huge... um, He's got a lot of pedigree in 50s TV. Yeah, which was a lot of comedic you know tv comedic sick yeah sitcoms really got into their own in the in the 1950s so i think it was a good choice for them to choose him for this because he was really able to lean onto that you know strength of his sitcom background and kind of you know comedic sitcom background and you know kind of blend it with the horror genre you know who they could not lean on for this uh movie though any of the three screenwriters yeah because i'm gonna ask you this right now do you think this is a structured, like, solid plot or story? Or is this just vignettes of monsters in Abbott and Costello? Yeah, I could say it, it's more of a vignette. I mean, it's more just fun with the monsters. And mm-hmm. how can we, you know, make it 
funnier in each scene yeah. leading up to you know the castle scene at the end where you know Abbott and Costello are being chased by Frankenstein and then you have Dracula and the Wolfman brawling through each room of the house which oh, is best part of the movie oh my god I love seeing you know they're picking up uh, chairs they're picking up uh, plants in the rooms and throwing them at each other yeah, a- when the Wolfman and Dracula are fighting and you're just like, oh, you're looking at this epic battle in the background as Abbott and Costello are running away from Frankenstein. And it's like, this is great shtick. Yeah. Like, there's something in the background you really want to be seeing, but these two goofballs are fighting Frankenstein and you're trying to divide your attention. Mm-hmm. And it's it that one's actually, like, just really well-crafted comedy. And it also is like, this is Scooby-Doo. Yeah. That is exactly like a Scooby-Doo move. A lot of fun stuff about this movie. But what's the topic conversation we want to move on to? Well, there is a controversy about this film, and a lot of people that love this film are still fighting this conversation of, should this be considered part of the Universal Classic Monsters, or is this just kind of like a canon film where they happen to be in this Abbott and Costello movie? Oh, that's actually a good question. Is this like a Jason ver- or Freddy versus Jason conversation? Like, which franchise do you count it in? Yeah. Um, or is it its own... Its own beast? Is that yeah. non-canon? Because this was made by Universal, right? Yes, this is a Universal picture with Universal characters. I mean, you've got Bela Lugosi as Dracula. And yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. It's okay, like... Okay, but that's... The, but look, let's be honest here. Bela Lugosi played Dracula one other time before this, mm-hmm. and then there's six Dracula movies with him not mm-hmm. as Dracula. Yeah. All right, so saying that those, if we're using... Bela Lugosi has only the ones he is in our canon, then Dracula has one movie other than this. Yeah. So my thinking is, I would honestly probably quantify this as an Abbott and Costello movie. I don't think this would, granted, movies back then, canon didn't really exist, No, no, this is, you know, more of a new thing, but this has been going on for decades where people are trying to figure out... Which, Which movie do we count this in the fandom? Yeah, it's like, should this be, you know part of the classic monsters or should this be canon i'm kind of stuck in the middle because it feels a lot like canon where you know it's just it's not you you want it to be because then you can say avon costello exist with the wolfman frankenstein Dracula. exactly and that that's the struggle because it's like i want it to be considered part of the classic monsters but then it's like it's really its own thing it's also like a decade out from the last like true classic monsters we're getting well, yeah, I mean, this is 48, and then, you know, a couple years later we get Creature, which is, like, the last of the classic monsters. Yeah. So, it's still in that realm of time. I I got one. Okay. This is kind of related to that, but I feel it's a little bit more into the actual movie itself. Okay. This is called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Yeah. This, Frankenstein is barely in this movie. Yeah. So, if we're calling it canon or in line with any of the... This is not a Frankenstein movie. No. Like, at all. No. Why was it called Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and not Abbott and Costello meet Dracula or the Wolfman? Or meets the monsters. Or meets the monsters. Like, why why call it... Why name check Frankenstein? Maybe it was just the strength that Frankenstein has. To market. Yeah. It, it could have been a thing where it's like, you know, Everybody Loved Dracula came out, you know, like nine months before Frankenstein did. And, you know, Frankenstein just did as well as Dracula did. Wolf, yeah, Wolfman's the more recent picture, but he doesn't have, like, the pedigree yet. Yeah, and of the monsters, he's more on the scarier side. So maybe for marketing, they thought this, this might be a better sell to 
adult audiences and younger audiences with Frankenstein, where it would kind of pull kids and families into, oh, it shouldn't be too scary if we bring the family to come see this movie. I feel you put Abbott and Costello on the title, you're getting a younger audience. I think that signals the audience is going to be meant for younger kids. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they were probably for everybody. But, you know, now in like this generation, generations past, you know, it was also, it's schlapstick, but it's, you know, appropriate. So you could show it to kids. Older people can watch it. That I got a lot of um, kid vibes from this. Like, yeah. this is definitely a movie that I could show, honestly, a five-year-old, eight-year-old this and they would dig it. Yeah, I, I remember growing up, we had a lot of their movies on tape. And it would just be a thing of, you know, okay, I'll, I'll put the tape in for you because it's Abbott and Costello. There's not going to be anything bad in it. Oh my God. Okay. I, I got a story kind of like that. So I was probably eight or nine mm -hmm. and I'm at my, uh, my cousin's house. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, uncle's there and he's like, oh, we're going to like put a movie in so you guys can like, you know, play around. It'll be fine. Whatever. Yeah. And the movie they put in is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, yeah. Terry Gilliam movie. It's a fantasy. It's it's fun, right? And it's like, ooh, fantasy characters, and they're going around. And it's, you know, a big, it's a fun romp, right? And, you know, watching the movie, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so fun. You know, it's all cool. That movie's a little bit of nightmare fuel. And also you get to see, like, a young Uma Thurman nude in that ah. movie. Yeah, yeah, because my uncle hadn't seen the movie. He's like, oh, this sounds like a kid's movie. Yeah, let's and pop it in. Pop it in. And it is, you know, a kid's movie. It's a kid-friendly movie, but it's like, there. Robin Williams is a floating head on a space dish. And I'm like, that's weird. And then <laughs> naked Uma Thurman, I'm like, oh, so I this is what puberty feels like. <laughs> and But that's the thing, like, I assume you've had that as a as a kid where your you know parents or somebody's like, this looks like a kid's movie, throws it in, and it's like, that is nightmare fuel forever. Uh, what, was I, I, that the Sleepy Hollow movie? No, I mean, that was one where, yeah, I was told at the time, you can't watch it. And my dad's like, oh, let's watch it. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, uh, Christopher Walken as the horseman's kind of terrifying. The Witch in the Woods. Oh, okay. She's Nightmare Fuel. Okay, so, <laughs> a fun fact about that. Another one, because that was one of the few movies um, when DVD was coming out. Mm -hmm. that, my, that was like one of the first movies my sister bought. Yeah. Right? Because I think she wanted like a spooky movie, but she didn't want to get a slasher, and I think it was cheap. Mm -hmm. So I remember as a as a wee lad watching that movie over and over again because mm -hmm. it was you know oh DVD that seems so cool it's on a disc and everything yeah that movie is not made for kids no that movie was horrible I was afraid of Christopher Walken for years not the headless horseman Christopher Walken the bleeding I, tree the ble oh the bleeding tree was weird I thought there was like. There was a weeping willow tree, or a tree that kind of looked like that yeah. one at my school. And I was like, I ain't going near that fucker. That thing's going to open, it's and gonna the horseman's going to come out. Yeah, and that, and that was the thing. There's some movies where I don't know why my parents thought were, this is okay for a kid. This is fine. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, um, that was me with Austin Powers. My dad showed me that for the first time. And I was like, I mean, it's not like, you know too it's not scary or anything it's not it's scary really or raunchy yeah it's very raunchy and then you have a kid that's you know picking up on the jokes but not really picking up on the jokes so i would like you know beat out some of these one-liners and it would be like i shouldn't be saying that you shouldn't be saying to your uh elementary school teachers i'm horny baby yeah well never said that no but no never never came up to you are you randy honey <laughs> no no never said that but you know, there's a lot of 
writing in the movie that it's like, yeah, kids shouldn't be listening to that and then repeating it to friends and family because it's just like, you shouldn't be saying that. Oh, God, that was... um. That was a whole other can of words. But Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? Totally safe for kids. Yeah, very totally safe. safe for I work. mean, I've seen a lot of their movies. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's never been like, ooh, that, that's a little bit, you know, rough for a younger audience. It's, it's, it's also not like the Road 2 films that Bing Crosby and Bill Hop Hope do, where they, oh, they might be funny, but they are problematic. I don't think I've seen those before. Um, some of them are fun. They're like half musicals, half comedies, mm. and they're all they're all like parodies or satires of yeah. uh, films at the time. Like they did one, Road to Morocco, mm-hmm. where it's a send up to all those like uh, Arabian adventure films and stuff like that. Where it's like, guys, come on, these, these movies are ridiculous, and they're poking fun at it. And just like, uh, but they're Mark- doing that, and also some of them are obviously in brownface. It's like that kind of shit. Yeah, versus like Marx Brothers when they did A Night in Casablanca when they're making fun of Casablanca and just a lot of these movies, but they're not, you know, doing it to offend anybody. So it's like we see the spectrum of, you know, where people take it a little too far and some people, they know exactly where to, you know, stay within the lines. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's not even like um, the lines. It's like, you know, how culture has shifted so much, especially in comedy. Yeah. Like, like there's the Peter Sellers movie, The Party, where he plays an Indian man. Um, it also, by the way, my dad loves that movie because my dad loves every Peter Sellers movie. Hmm. Yeah, didn't know that until I was a grown man and I found out my dad will watch any Peter Sellers movie, no questions asked. He thinks he's hilarious. But there's stuff like that where it's like, okay, comedy has shifted a lot in the last, yeah. you know, 30 years even. And, like, Abner Costello, they're still pretty good. Like, you can still, like, vibe to this. Marx Brothers, you can really vibe to. They're, they're really funny. Yeah. But it's... Because, I mean, Abner Costello is a lot of physical comedy. Mm-hmm. And Marx Brothers, it's, you know, cut right in the middle of physical and witty comedy. Fit- physical, witty, there's one-liners, there's whole musical numbers in there's movies. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Abner Costello, they're good. They're real good at, at their lane. Um, I just don't know if I would, would you qualify them as like S tier comic duos in comic history? Oh, definitely. S tier or S tier or just A tier? Are they up there? Would you compare them to the, say they're as good as the Marx Brothers? I wouldn't say they're as good as the Marx Brothers because the Marx Brothers are like their own variety show. Yeah. So they're, they're a different act. They're a completely different act. I mean, you, you could show them to kids, but at the same time, they're more... You, you know, geared adults to would adults. Get him. Yeah. So with Abbott and Costello, it's more family fun. L- Laurel and Hardy. Ooh, would I you, love Laurel and Hardy too. W- would you not? Would you set them up Laurel and Hardy, and that'd be a fair fight one to one? Yeah, because I, I mean, it's another uh, dynamic duo. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to find these pair acts versus you either have a group, you have a single person like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. Yeah. Um, and he... the and the comedy group pretty much died in what the fifties sixties, because I know SNL is like a thing in like the seventies onwards, 70s, yeah. but that's like a comedy troupe and that's mm-hmm. like TV and they're all sketch acts. But yeah. I'm trying to think. Can you think of any you know comic duo or comic um group that just is successful now? I mean, I know we had this conversation, what was it, like a few days ago? We were trying to Something figure out... like that. We were trying to figure out if there's, like, comedy duos now. Like an and... Abbott and Costello, where the movie sold on, oh, it's these two funny men in this movie. And I'm thinking, like, 
um, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Those were the only two I can think of in recent years. I mean, I was if we're gonna like go Abbott and Costello level, I was thinking The Rock and Kevin Hart because they do like like family friendly movies like Jumanji. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like they know where they can lean. You know, like okay, we gotta be good for. The kids that are watching us. And we gotta be funny. And they, they do have a lot more of a straight man, goofy man aesthetic. Yeah, and then they're able to do movies where, you know, they can lean more towards the adult humor. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think the two of them have a good range, kind of like Abbott and Costello, where they can kind of entertain everybody and not just, you know, one single group or a younger audience. Yeah. And that's, I think, a thing about comedy where because of, like, the SNL change-up, because... I know I bring this up all the time, but yeah, SNL like shifted comedy a lot in oh, the 70s. Yeah. And it, we still feel that effects now. Like most of our comic actors now come from like the SNL crew. And it's almost like, I don't know if you can get an an organic Abbott and Costello anymore. Mostly because I think they are so ingrained in like that old school vaudeville performance and yeah. all that stuff. I can't, I don't know if we'll get another good comedy duo or comedy act that exists in films as like a comedy duo yeah that's what i was saying you know i think the closest we're gonna get at least right now is the rock and kevin hart because they're so versatile you know it's like they can appeal to adult audiences they can appeal to child audiences and it's really hard to get that you know when there's a lot of stand-up comedians and it's like oh no, you are very much just for adults yeah or you're very you know stand-up where i only do like Packed, you know. I'm a I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm not an actor. And, yeah. And the other thing with The Rock and Kevin Hart, they're two giant stars that yeah. are just in movies together and being funny. Yeah, and it's interesting to see, you know, especially Kevin Hart because he, you know, went from stand-up actor or no, sorry, stand-up comedian <laughs> to a actor, and he kind of you know goes back and forth now where he does his own like you know stand-up you know comedy hours for like Netflix or whatever. The specials. Yeah, whatever specials he's working on, but. I don't know if we're ever going to get like a, a true Abbott and a Costello again because they were vaudevillian and the, that this, craft. This you know, style is also so gone. Yeah, I mean, it was gone, you know, when this was, you know, around in the 40s. And it was just, you know, these are the remnants of the actors that were part of this world and were able to survive. Yeah, and that that's another thing because Abbott and Costello, you know, I think we said at the beginning that their career was like going downward when this came out because they had worked for like eight years they released like 20 movies and they were like all right guys we're rounding out and they make this it's a big hit and they grinned and bared for another 10 years Mm -hmm. or another another eight years because i think their careers were over in 55 whenever costello passed away yeah and they made another 15 20 movies so it's really weird to think you know abbott and costello as oh, these guys were like, you know, the last guard of the old vaudeville types, and they were these um, comic actors of this, like, huge generation. When, if you really think about it, their career was only, like, 15 years? Their entire their entire run, every movie encapsulated in 10, 15 years. Whereas now, like, I guess Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, those guys, they mm-hmm. were huge in the, in like the late seventies into the eighties yeah. and they were comedic gods. You know, Eddie Murphy literally owned the 1980s oh, as, yeah. the, as the comedian. Um, and it's, it's just interesting to think about it where the lifespan of comic acts is pretty 
stringent. Mm-hmm. You know, mo- I don't think that are that many comic acts that span more than a couple of years. And I think now it's almost like you can only really be funny for like two or three years before you have to get a new comic act in because culture speeds up so much. Yeah, or you have, you know, the actors themselves that are maybe tired of being comedians and they want to do more serious roles or yeah. um, musical roles, you know, just they want to change it up versus being the funny person all the time. That that's happened. That happens to Adam Sandler. Every 10 years, he does like a punch drunk love or an uncut gems yeah. to prove that, no, guys, I'm an amazing actor. I just really want to make funny movies with my friends. Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with, but you could totally understand it. You know, an artist is going to get tired of, you know, working on the same, you know, specialty thing over and over again. It's just, you know, expanding your wings and trying something different. And I think this movie, you know, kind of helped Abner Costello because it saved their career. It saved their career. Uh, I think they were both paid like a million dollars for this movie, which, you know, in the. What the fuck yeah they were paid a lot for this movie they really didn't want to do it and the studio was like no we need you guys hold hold rounding it back this movie comes out in 1948 and you're telling me these two guys got paid a million a pop i'm pretty sure i had i think i have it in my notes somewhere because i mean i'm getting the inflation calculator because i mean luca stello really did not want to do this and they were just like no we need to make this happen and yeah, I, let's see. He was given a $50,000 advance in his salary just for signing. Just for signing. Just for signing. So that's not like his his pay, gross pay for the movie. That's Mm-mm. just for that's his just, signing yeah. bonus. Okay, so for people curious, $1 million in 1948 adjusted for 1922, they both got paid like $12 million a pop to be in this movie. That's an insane amount of money. And, you know, the budget for this movie was 800000 Wait, the budget is 800000 Then they couldn't have gotten paid a million. Well, you want to know what the worldwide gross was? What? $4.8 million. Oh, damn. So they really made their money back. Again, I, they couldn't have gotten paid a million for this movie. If they got paid 50... Granted, 50 Gs was like 600, like 600 grand back in the day. But I'm like... My God, that is a an exorbitant amount of money for these guys. Yeah. Who, like, let's be honest, they their last couple of movies they didn't make a whole lot of money, and they were, like, on the decline. The studio was going to, like, shelf them for a few years. Mm-hmm. To be able to get that kind of cash in pocket, that is insane. Yeah. I mean, they want, the studio wanted them, and they were willing to do whatever they could get to get them. And, I to, mean. To what? String out, to, like, squeeze out one last movie before they shelf them? Shelf them or, you know, the monsters, you know, kind of have one last hurrah to have multiple monsters in one movie. Mm -hmm. And it worked. It was kind of like their Hail Mary shot and they landed it. All right. That that's very impressive. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. Uh, So before we round up, tell everybody thoughts, opinions, whatever. I would like to ask if you have anything for Boo's Trivia Corner. Well, I do have some trivia facts for this movie. So, you know, earlier on in the podcast, I talked about how they were under the impression that Bela Lugosi was dead at the time that they were planning this movie out. As the song goes. Yes. So, apparently, this was the last movie that Bela Lugosi did for a major studio. Oh, uh, yeah, because he started doing stuff with, like, Ed Wood in mm-hmm. the in the 50s, right? Yeah, so this was his last, like, major, you know, motion picture movie that he did. Mm. Uh, let's see, another trivia fact I have. 
this one involves Tarantino. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's, you know, cited from a, a uh, interview with Tarantino that this film was a big influence on him on how to blend different genres together. And that's what we see in his films where he's able to, you know... B- blend crime, comedy, mm-hmm. westerns, and all their actions. And yeah, I-, I see where she's getting at. Yeah, so it's not just, you know, people like me that are die, you know, diehard, you know, monster lovers. It's, you know, also filmmakers like Tarantino where it's like, oh, you know what? You can blend, you know, something as, you know, wide apart as comedy and horror and tie them up and you have a really good film. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with, like, Pulp Fiction because... He he keeps quantifying it when people ask, like, where do you put this as, like, your genre or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's, like, uh, um, a crime film. And he's like, it's more like a comedy. Yeah. They're like, okay, it's a comedy. Well, it's also a, l- a little bit of, like, a romance, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it's in, we'll put it in the romance. Well, it's also a little bit of an action movie. We'll put it over there. It's also a little bit of an exploitation movie. He, his movies blend a lot of genres. And then we're going to drop some surfer music in it. Oh, obviously. You know, Jackie Brown, there you go. Yeah. But, okay, that's really cool. Yeah, and then, one, you know, one fact that I kind of love, because I love Lon Chaney Jr.'s The Wolfman scared me since I was a kid. This is the first time that his Wolfman has appeared in London. Really? Mm-hmm. I feel there was a sequel where he was in London. Nope, this is the only film. Weird. And the fact that he gets to open the film, too. It's not Abbott and Costello. True. It, it's him in London. It's him turning into the wolf man. So it's like, okay, like, all right, you go, Lon Chaney. Again, best part of the movie. Oh, yeah. He's the, I... he's the best actor in the movie. He's doing the best performance. And he's, yeah, best part of the movie. And I think my final trivia fact of this movie, even though it's hard not to just, you know. Keep spewing. Keep going with the trivia. But the part where Wilbur gets knocked on the chin by Frankenstein when he breaks through the door. Uh-huh. When they're trying to keep him locked in the room. That, that actually wasn't scripted. Oh, did Glenn Strange just punch Costello through the door? No, Costello deliberately stepped off of his mark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they called for, you know, the action to happen in the scene. And, you know, Glenn Strange punches through the door, got him on the chin on accident. <laughs> and, you know, in the movie, when we see him, you know, his eyes are practically rolling in his head. That was his actual reaction to getting, you know... Yeah, to getting cold-cocked by this six-foot-six behemoth of a man. Yeah, and uh, the director, he loved, you know, the reaction and just how everything played out. He was like, no, I I want that for the film. All right, I like it. Suffering for your art. Exactly. And that is all my trivia for this movie. (sighs) And with that, the final decision on the movie. So, your final thoughts on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Two very strong thumbs up. I love this movie. Uh, like, you know, the argument that I was making for most of this episode is that this is for all audiences. It's, you know, a great movie to start children with if they want to get into the, the monster genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they want to just get into physical comedy where it's not just, you know, animated stuff. It's two guys, you know, bumbling around on crates. or Because they're living cartoons. Yeah, they're living cartoons. They're being chased by monsters. You've got monsters fighting monsters. There's just so much happening in this movie. I love it. It's blended very beautifully together. I love the score. I love the uh, the opening intro with uh, the the drawn in monsters as the cartoon monsters as they're you know finding each other and walking up that hill together. It's like I love it so much. I love this whole movie. All right. Uh, one and thumb up. It was good. Just one thumb. <laughs> is uh, your other thumb broken? Are you okay? Oh, uh, I can give it like one and a half 
thumbs up. I Because I think the opening is a little slow. I do think all the comedy, for the most part, still works. I think this is definitely great for kids. Um, and I honestly, I'm intrigued to watch some more Abbott and Costello movies. Probably, probably like Abbott and Costello meet the mummy and like that monster. The Invisible thing. Man, because I really like the Invisible Man. Yeah. But I would say this is a this is a good movie. This is a solid mm. flick, and I think this Halloween, if you got some kids, you can put this on and you'll have a great night. But yeah, that's Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. It was, and it's still great. It still yeah. holds up. Yeah, it holds up pretty well. But uh, what are we watching? for our bonus episode because that's the surprise this this week that is i wasn't quite ready to let go of monstober because i can't it, it, halloween can't you know be over yet but in a way it is kind of over because it's very much over because we're going to be talking about a new film kind of controversial at the moment yes uh we're going to be talking about halloween ends yeah, that's the newest David Gordon Green Halloween film. It's the end of the climactic trilogy. Um, the franchise. Of the franchise. It's being billed as the last time we'll see Jamie Lee Curtis fighting Michael Myers. It's a movie that you have been looking forward to for a long time. Yeah. And we're going to talk about it because, you know, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's going to be a bonus episode. It's going to come out on Halloween, so look out for that. Yes, Halloween Day, look out for that. We will be dropping that episode. And on top of that, we got to talk about next month's theme. Yes, because Monday, that's Halloween. But Thursday, that's November, where we're going to be talking about new movies to us. Movies we have not seen before that we want to see what all the hubbub is about. And it's my pick as the first week of November. And we're going to be watching Cool Hand Luke, starring Paul Newman. I'm excited. I love Paul Newman. I really like him, too, but I've never seen this movie. I've only seen bits and pieces and probably not enough to know the, the full scope of the movie. Me either. But before we go, we kind of have to do a roundup of our movies for this month. Oh, that is correct. Our favorite movie and our least favorite movie of the month. So <sighs> what is your... Number one movie of this month. This is hard because I've seen all these movies. I love all these movies. Um, Do, do you want me to just tell you? You could tell me. It's The Bride of Frankenstein. Like, you're going to pick anything else. Damn, you're right. Let's it be, is right. Let's be honest. Because, like, I mean, gonna... I was really stuck with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because it has three of my favorite monsters. But then we have The Bride and we have Frankenstein. Yeah, and I would, I would even argue it's like... It, my toss-up is, like, The Bride and The Invisible Man. And, like, I love The Invisible Man. Objectively, I would say it's, like, my favorite. I think it's the most well-made one. But if I had to pick, like, this month, which one is the actual best movie, mm -hmm. it's probably The Bride of Frankenstein. Like, in Yeah, Invisible Man's my personal favorite. I love it. Love that movie top to bottom. All the performances are amazing. But if I had to pick, like, the most auteurist vision, the best, like, expression of the, the cinema, of the cinema then yeah, it's, it's Bride of Frankenstein. It's Kino. It is Kino. And also it has one of your favorite quotes. A, a, a toast to a new world of gods and monsters. See, I had a, I thought about it for a second. I was so shocked. Like, how did he forget? For weeks he's been saying that quote over and over. I have not. I think I said it during the episode and I haven't said it since. You said it prior to that. Y yeah, leading up to it, but whatever. Um, But those are the, the that's the best movie. Yeah least good movie oh there's none everything's good this month yes <laughs> everything is perfection so with that 
where can they come back to listen to us? Well, if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, and YouTube. Yep, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault, and that is The Film Vault on YouTube. You can find us, The Film Club Podcast, you can find our bonus episodes, you can like, comment, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. But if you wanted to follow our socials, you can go to... The Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post daily stories, trivia, upcoming episodes, and just random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. 